0: In the beginning, human beings created a God who was the first cause of all things and ruler of heaven and earth. He was not represented by images and had no temple or priest in his service. He was too exalted for an inadequate human cult. Gradually, he faded from the consciousness of his people. He became so remote that they decided they did not want him anymore. Eventually, he was said to have disappeared. That, at least, is the theory popularized by Father Wilhelm Schmidt in The Origin of the Idea of God, first published in 1912. Schmidt argued that there had been a primitive monotheism before men and women started to worship a number of gods. Originally, they had acknowledged only one supreme deity who had created the world and governed human affairs from afar. Belief in such a high God, sometimes called the sky God, is still a feature of the religious life of many indigenous African tribes. They yearn toward him in prayer, believe that he is watching over them, and will punish wrongdoing. Yet, he is strangely absent from their daily lives. He has no special cult and is never depicted in effigy. The tribesmen say that he is inexpressible and cannot be contaminated by the world of men. Some people say he has gone away. Anthropologists suggest that this god became so distant and exalted that he had been replaced by lesser and more accessible gods so too, according to Schmidt's theory, the sky god was replaced by more attractive gods of the pagan pantheon. Now, it's impossible to prove this one way or the other. Yet, it seems that creating gods is something human beings have always done, just as they have always created art and music. For example, the Paleolithic period when agriculture was developing the cult of the mother goddess arose expressing that sense, the sense that fertility was transforming human life that, that that fertility was actually sacred this mother goddess was even more powerful than the sky god and remained important for centuries statues of her pregnant body are found all over europe the middle east and india Then, like the sky god, she was demoted to the ranks of the older deities. Yahweh, who introduced himself to Moses from the burning bush in Midian, and who wreaked such havoc upon the Egyptians during the Exodus, was much later transformed from a warlike, passionately tribal god into a much more compassionate god advocating justice. The idea of God formed by one generation in one locality could be meaningless to another generation and or in a different locality. So new gods were created and the concepts of existing gods were changed. The period from 800 to 200 BCE called the Axial Age saw great changes in all the main religions of the so-called civilized world of Europe, India, and Asia. The new theologies reflected the changed economic and social conditions. There was a new prosperity, which led to the rise of the merchant class. Power was shifting from kings and priests, temple and palace, to the marketplace. This new wealth led to an intellectual and cultural flowering and also to the development of individual conscience. Inequality and exploitation became more um, pronounced in the rise of the cities and people began to realize that their own behavior could affect the fate of future generations. So each religion developed a unique ideology to address these problems and concerns. Taoism and Confucianism in China, Hinduism and Buddhism in India, and philosophical rationalism in Europe, think Greece, for example. The Middle East did not produce a unified solution, but Iran and Israel uh, But in Iran and Israel, Zoroastrianism and the Hebrew prophets, respectively, evolved different versions of monotheism. Strange as it may seem, the idea of God, like the other great religious insights of the period, developed in a market economy, in the spirit of aggressive capitalism. So the statement, I believe in God, has no objective meaning as such, but only in context when proclaimed by a particular community at a particular time. The word God contains a whole spectrum of meanings, some of which are contradictory or mutually exclusive. If the notion of God had not had this degree of flexibility, it would not have survived for so many centuries to become one of the great human ideas. When one conception of God has ceased to have meaning, it is discarded and replaced by a new theology. Now, a fundamentalist of any stripe would deny this since fundamentalism is anti-historical. A fundamentalist believes that Abraham, Moses, and the later prophets all experienced their God in exactly the same way as people do today. Now, if one looks at Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, which all arose from the same Abraham, we can see this absurdity. The absurdity of this belief, there's nothing alike. Even in the Christian religion itself, there are so many different variations. They couldn't all be worshiping the same God that Abraham did. Now, the same question can be asked of atheists. The statement, I don't believe in God, has meant something different in each period of history the people who have been dubbed atheists over the years have usually denied a particular definition of God. Is the God that the atheist denies today the God of the patriarchs, the God of the prophets, the God of the philosophers, the God of the mystics, or the God of the 18th century deists? All of these gods have been venerated, although under different names, by Jews, Christians, and Muslims at various times in their histories, and they are all different. Is modern atheism a similar denial of a god which is no longer adequate for the problems of our time? Is it perhaps time to create a new god, which is not antithetical to our current scientific worldview? Or is it just the word God, which is objected to regardless of its meaning? Is it a word which carries too much emotional baggage, the way the word Obama triggers the emotion of many Republicans? (laughs) Socrates... The great champion of reason took as his motto, know thyself. He claimed that the unexamined life is not worth living. Surely an understanding and appreciation of our emotions is most important to self-knowledge. A life without motion, without passion, is just a shadow of a life. However, Socrates insisted on treating the emotions as unworthy of serious philosophical reflection. According to the ancient tradition, the emotions are limited and undependable. They may tell us a great deal about our subjective psychological state, but very little about the true ways of the world. Plato was slightly different. He clearly saw that spirituality was incomprehensible and worthless if it did not tap into some deeper truth about the world. But whereas passions are erratic and transient, the truth, he thought, is eternal and unchanging. So the part of us which comprehends the truth, he thought, must be eternal and unchanging, too. Accordingly, philosophical accounts of human relation, human nature, have tended to reduce all the richness of spiritual life to one single feature, rationality. The 20th century philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, in his book Science in the Modern World, asserts that Plato's reasoning is the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Where do you look to find the most real stuff in the world? the most concrete part of existence. Whitehead suggests that thoughts and ideas are abstractions from the real world and that the real stuff of being is is experience. If you want to get in touch with what really matters, talk about experience, not ideas you can discuss ideas ad nauseum. You can disprove them or refute them or define them out of existence because they are only abstractions. Our experiences are simply there, being what they are. They are a huge part of what makes us, us. Our experiences, which include our memories of people, places, Sounds and smells connect us in a vital way to the world around us. Each one of us has our own unique collection of experiences. Our memories are what allow us to plan for the future. If our hippocampus, which makes forms our long-term memories, is injured, we're unable to create long-term memory, and we live forever in the present. If we suffer anemia and lose our past memories, we also cannot plan for the future until we build a new state of memories, new store of memories. In his book, God Revised, How Religion Must Evolve in a Scientific Age, Galen Gingrich asserts that our experiences of being extensively connected to the universe are an absolutely necessary aspect of a fulfilling human life. It is this totality of experience he is referring to when he uses the word God. Quote, God is the experience of being connected to all that is, all that is present, all that is past, and all that is future. This would not be a supernatural God. God. Not a God to pray to, but a God which is part of us. When we speak of the universe, we are usually referring to the physical world. But we don't have a word to encompass the non-physical world. That is, the world of experience, memories, and emotions. Now the word God may not be the best word. But humans have redefined God many, many times. So why not again, along more rational lines? Now, to the spirituality part, this is really hard for me because there are so many meanings to, the word, to, the, to this word also, like with God. What do people mean when they say, I am spiritual but not religious? Now, well, the religious part has to do with the rejection of the unbelievable claims made by most religions, the dogma, and the atrocities committed in the name of religion. The spiritual part usually involves the ocean, the mountains, or the night sky, a place where one has an experience of the sublime, a feeling that unites an experience of the majestity of the universe with the experience of our human fragility. At the core of every religion lies an undisputable claim about the human condition. Namely, it is possible to have one's experience of the world radically transformed. Although we generally live within the limits imposed by everyday life, we sleep, we work, we eat, we play, we watch TV, we converse with others, most of us know, however dimly, that extraordinary experiences are possible. The problem with most religions is that they blend this truth with the bitter pill of unreason. But a more profound response to existence is possible to us and the testimony of many men and women over the ages attest to that the challenge for us is to begin talking about this in rational terms what do we need to be happy we need food shelter and clothing we need company we need to find work that we enjoy and we need time for leisure and the list goes on and on. But are these things sufficient for happiness? Well, apparently not. Um, well, I skipped a sentence here. <laughs> Is a person guaranteed to be happy if they have health, wealth, and good company? No, no, that's where apparently not. Indian yogis who renounce all material and family ties only to spend decades in a cave practicing meditation claim that they are perfectly happy. It's difficult to find a word for this human enterprise which aims at happiness directly. A happiness which can survive the frustration of all human desires. The term spirituality seems unavoidable here but it has many connotations which are, frankly, quite embarrassing. Look at the New Age books section at the bookstore, for example. Mysticism also could be used, but it too has some unfortunate associations. Neither word captures the reasonableness and profundity of the problem that we must consider, that there is a form of self-being that supersedes all others, that transcends the vagaries of experience itself. So I will use the word spirituality and mysticism interchangeably, because I don't know of any other alternative. The history of human spirituality is of our attempt to explore and modify what goes on in our consciousness through methods of fasting, Chanting, sensory deprivation, meditation, prayer, psychotropic plants, and currently electrical and magnetic probes into the brain. But the fact that we are looking for rational explanations for these transcendent experiences does not make them any less powerful and satisfying. Now, a small digression into neuroanatomy is... Seems necessary here. I may not really need it for most of you, but to make my story complete. The brain is composed of two hemispheres, the left and the right, connected by a strong fibrous cord called a corpus callosum. When connected, the two brains work together, complementing each other. But when they're separated, they operate independently and have different aspects and functions. At a physical level, the left brain controls the right side of the body, and the right brain controls the left side of the body. The left brain is more analytical and logical. It's where our verbal skills are found, while the right brain is more holistic and artistic. But the left brain is dominant and makes the final decisions. When the two hemispheres are separated, however, the right brain is free from the dictatorship of the left. Perhaps the right brain can have a will of its own, contradicting the wishes of the dominant left. This creates a very bizarre situation where the left hand, controlled by the right brain, starts to act independently of our wishes, which are come from the left brain. It's like an alien appendage. (laughs) Reminds me of that movie of Dr. Strangelove. (laughs) Pulling his hand out when it doesn't. The right brain creates a master collage of all the sensory input of each moment in time. What it looks like, what it sounds like, smells like, tastes like, and feels like. Moments don't come and go but are rich with sensations, thoughts, emotions, and often physiological responses. Information processed this way allows us to take an immediate inventory about the space around us and our relationship to that space. To the right brain, no time exists other than the present moment, and each moment is vibrant with sensations. The description of the working of the right hemisphere coincides almost identically with what Jill Taylor exper- experienced after her stroke occurred, which severely damaged the left, her left hemisphere. There was absolutely nothing supernatural about her experience. People who suffer temporal lobe epilepsy sometimes experience seizures. Seizures but some of them also experience a curious side effect that may shed some light on the structure of religious beliefs. These patients suffer from hyper-religiosity and can't help thinking that there is a spirit or a presence behind everything. Random events are never random, but have some deep religious significance. Some psychologists have speculated that a number of history's prophets who were convinced that they talked with God actually suffered from these epileptic lesions. The curious effect was noticed as far back as 1892 when textbooks mentioned a link between religious emotionalism and epilepsy. Now, psychologist Michael Persinger asserts that a certain type of transcranial electrical stimulation, abbreviated T-E-M, can influence the effect of these epileptic lesions. I'm sorry, can induce the effects of these lesions. If so, is it possible that magnetic fields can alter one's religious beliefs? Well, in these studies... the subjects wear a helmet called the God Helmet, which contains a device that can send magnetic signals into particular parts of the brain. Afterwards, when the subject is interviewed, he will often claim he was in the presence of some great spirit. Quote, this is from Persinger, During the three-minute bursts of stimulation, the affected subject's, translate this perception of the divine into their own cultural and religious language, terming it God, Buddha, a benevolent presence, or the wonder of the universe. Since this effect is reproducible on demand, it indicates that the brain is hardwired in some way to respond to religious feelings. Hence, the God gene. Would an experiment using the God helmet shake a person's religious belief? And can an MRI machine record the brain activity of a person who is experiencing a religious incident? To check this out, Dr. Mario Beauregard of the University of Montreal recruited 15 Carmelite nuns who agreed to put their heads into an MRI machine. To qualify for the experiment, all of them must have had an experience of intense union with God. What Dr. Beauregard had hoped was that at least one of these nuns would have a mystical experience with God. However, shoving one's head into an MRI machine with all of its coils and high-tech equipment is not an ideal setting for a religious epiphany. The final results were inconclusive. But well, what was the reaction of the nuns? Well, they were ecstatic. They concluded that God had placed this radio in their brains so that we could communicate with him and he could communicate with us. Now, Richard Dawkins, a biologist at the university, at Oxford University and a confirmed atheist, also consented to try on the God Helmet. Did it change his religious views? No. Dr. Beauregard concluded, if you are an atheist and you have a certain kind of experience, you will relate it to the magnificence of the universe. If you are a Christian, you will associate it with God. Perhaps they are the same thing. Here's a statement from Jill Taylor, Jill Taylor, from her from her book toward the end of her book. This stroke of insight has given me the priceless gift of knowing that deep inner peace is just a thought or a feeling away. To experience peace does not mean that your life is always blissful. It means that you are capable of tapping into a blissful state of mind amidst the normal chaos of a hectic life. I realize that for many of us, the distance between our thinking mind and our compassionate heart sometimes feels miles away. Some of us, on the other hand, traverse this distance on command. And here I think it takes, some of these things, it takes practice. The first time you try to meditate, you're probably not going to get into this state, but after you practice and practice and practice, it becomes easier and easier. So I've been told I've never had the patience to do it. Back back to Jill Taylor. Based upon my experience of losing my left mind, I wholeheartedly believe that the feeling of deep inner peace comes from neurological circuitry located in the right brain. This circuitry is constantly running and always available for us to hook into. The feeling of peace is something that happens in the present moment. It's not something we bring with us from the past or the present into the future. Step one to experience inner peace is to be present in the right here and the right now. And now also another quote. This is from the final statement um, from a book called *The End of Faith* by Sam Harris, who is one of the quote new atheists, but the only one that I have read that mentions or seems to know anything at all about spirituality. His quote: "Mysticism is a rational enterprise. The mystic has recognized something about the nature of consciousness prior to thought." and the recognition is susceptible to rational discussion. The mystic has reasons for what he believes, and these reasons are empirical. The roiling mystery of the world can be analyzed with concepts. This is science. Or it can be experienced free of concepts. This is mysticism. Spiritual experience ethical behavior, and strong communities are essential for human happiness, and yet our religious traditions are intellectually defunct and politically ruinous. While spiritual experience is clearly a natural propensity of the human mind, we need not believe anything on insufficient evidence to actualize it. Clearly, It must be possible to bring reason, spirituality, and ethics together in our thinking about the world. This would be the beginning of a rational approach to our deeper personal experience. And to me, this is what Unitarianism is based on and what we aspire to here at Hope Church. Thank you.